and welcome to Talking General Practice, the podcast from GP Online. I'm Emma Bauer, the editor of GP Online. Today on the podcast, I'm joined by our news editor, Nick Bostock, to talk about some of the latest news affecting primary care. Coming up, we're talking about the government's long-awaited NHS workforce plan and what general practice will be hoping to see in this. We're looking at results from a recent survey we've undertaken about inappropriate transfer of work from secondary to primary care and what needs to be done to address this. And we're discussing a motion that's up for debate at next month's BMA annual representative meeting where delegates will call for a no-confidence vote in the GMC as well as some of the other issues relevant to general practice that will be debated at that meeting. Finally, our good news story highlights some of the GPs who received honours in the King's Birthday Honours List last weekend. That's all to come on this episode of Talking General Practice. Just a quick warning, there is a mention of suicide later on in this podcast in the section where we discuss the BMA vote on the GMC. First up, the long-awaited NHS workforce plan is expected to finally see the light of day in the next few weeks. It feels like we've been talking about this or writing about it for a very long time. Nick, what do we know about when it's due to be published? NHS England said earlier this year that it would publish a workforce plan by spring, and that hasn't happened. But we've now had some fairly strong hints that it could come soon, and I think it does seem quite likely that it'll see the light of day within the next month. The evidence we have for that is that both Steve Barclay, the Health and Social Care Secretary, and NHS Chief Executive Amanda Pritchard commented at a recent conference on when the plan might come out. The latter, Amanda Pritchard, said on the 14th of June that she hoped to be able to publish it in the coming weeks. And then Steve Barclay followed that up the next day by saying that he rated the chances of it being out before the NHS's 75th birthday, which is the 5th of July, as an 8 or 9 out of 10. It's hard to know, obviously, how much weight to attach to that score. But at a select committee meeting this week, one MP pointed out that Parliament will go into recess for summer on the 20th of July. Parliament will shut down from then until early September. And he pointed out that might be a cut-off for publishing the workforce plan, because if it isn't out by then, then some of the work within it might be out of date by the time it actually comes out post-recess. And we've also had a few clues about what's been holding it up from that committee session. There may be some wrangling between NHS England, uh, the Department of Health, Number 10, and the Treasury about priorities and funding. Uh, And there are some other factors that have made the picture more complex. Disputes over pay in the NHS have created some uncertainty over what the total wage bill for the health service is going to be, for example. And the workforce plan also needs to fit with ongoing changes to the structure of the NHS with integrated care systems bedding in. And another factor that Steve Barclay mentioned was the need to factor in infrastructure costs. So if you expand medical school places, um, there are capital costs involved in making sure that those extra people can be accommodated. So the plan's supposed to be a 10-year plan for the NHS workforce. And as I've mentioned, and regular listeners to the podcast will know, it's been under development for quite some time. Do we have any clues about what's likely to be in it? What has the government and NHS England already said about it? There have been some reports that it could double the number of medical school places by just before the end of the decade and that it could ramp up training of nurses and other staff and potentially increase GP training places by about 50% from the current level, which is 4,000 a year. Steve Barclay said this week that there was a consensus that the UK needs to increase its domestic supply of healthcare workers. 
some sort of major expansion of training programs for doctors, nurses and other healthcare professionals seems really likely to be a large part of what comes in that workforce plan. We've already had some information on this from the GP Access Recovery Plan too. It was published earlier this year. So that document promised that GP training places would be significantly expanded as part of the workforce plan, although it didn't put a, a number on it. And it also talked about measures to extend visas by four months for overseas doctors who complete UK GP training to try and increase retention. And that's massively important because about half of doctors in GP training now got their primary medical qualification outside the UK because it can be difficult to find practices that are visa sponsors before visas run out. Some newly qualified GPs have actually found it difficult to remain in the UK after completing their training, despite the fact that the health service is crying out for more GPs at the moment. So we can also expect the workforce plan to double down on on using a wider range of health professionals in the NHS workforce through schemes such as the Additional Roles and Reimbursement Scheme, which obviously aims to provide 26,000 staff in additional roles to support primary care. And it'll talk about the use of multidisciplinary teams and, and that kind of thing. The Health and Social Care Secretary said this week that the plan is not just about numbers and that it would look at skill mix as well as sort of helping existing staff work to the top of their licence to sort of maximise what they can offer for the NHS, and partly with help from new technology. So it seems likely to cover, in summary, expanding training, expanding recruitment, making the best use of a wide range of healthcare staff, as well as how technology can help. And you'd be surprised if there wasn't at least a brief mention of AI in there somewhere. The thing about visas for international medical graduates will obviously be very welcomed by general practice. But what else will GPs be hoping to see in the plan? I imagine a lot of them will be hoping to see some sort of credible plans around GP retention in particular, You know how we can keep people in the profession for longer. Have the RCGP and BMA said anything about what they're hoping for? The RCGP has said that it wants the plan to go beyond the government's existing pledge to expand the, the general practice workforce by 6,000 GPs. We looked earlier this year at the the real mismatch between, on the one hand, an expanding and increasingly complex patient population, and on the other, a shrinking GP workforce. I mean, the NHS has lost more than 2,000 fully qualified full-time equivalent GPs since 2015, and our estimates suggest we need an extra 7,400 GPs just to deliver safe care to the current patient population. So on that basis, 6,000 GPs extra is not enough. And it may not be a case of just adding to the workforce because it's also about replacing people who are currently walking out the door. The RCGP has estimated that 19,000 GPs could quit in the next five years because the job has become so difficult. The plan needs to be massively ambitious just to tackle the problem in general practice, let alone you know, more than 100,000 vacancies across the health service as a whole. And the college has called for a, a big overhaul of recruitment and retention schemes for GPs, but maybe the elephant in the room is going to be pay. Junior doctors have been on strike. Consultants are likely to be soon. GPs could be balloted if talks on next year's contract can't undo some of the things that they didn't like in the imposed deal for this year. So in some ways, whatever the workforce plan says in terms of numbers, if it isn't backed up by enough funding to settle pay disputes that run right across the current workforce, then it might not add up to much. 
It might also be worth mentioning here a related story that you wrote last week from the NHS Confederation's annual conference. There was a session at that conference on racism and the financial cost of racism in the NHS. And during that session, Dr Chan Nagpur, who's a GP and who many listeners may know as a previous chair of the BMA, and is in fact the first person from an ethnic minority to chair the BMA, spoke about the impact that racism has had on the workforce. Dr Nagpur, who's a, he's a North London GP, and he was also chair of the BMA's GP committee before he went on to become chair of the organisation as a whole. Uh, and he, he spoke about how racism is actively shrinking the NHS workforce. Uh, he pointed to polling data, which we've reported on in the past from the BMA, that shows about a quarter of doctors are considering leaving the NHS because of racism. About one in six have taken sick leave because of racism and 9% have left a job because of racism. So he said there's, there's a human cost to this, the impact on individuals who experience racism, but also the cost to the NHS as a whole and a massive impact on patient safety. Racism is directly driving up the risk that doctors will make mistakes and is therefore compromising patient safety, Dr Nagpal said. And this is because doctors are being prevented from being at their best, working with stress and at a high risk of burnout because of how they're being treated. He also spoke about statistics that show health organisations with an inclusive, equal environment are more productive, have fewer errors and better patient outcomes. So he made the clinical and economic case for ending racism alongside the more obvious argument that discrimination is just wholly unacceptable. One of the other things he actually did touch on as well, which we will probably mention a bit later on, is about the disproportionate referrals to the GMC for staff who are of black or an ethnic minority. And the sort of issues that you described there and that issue as well is they don't just affect doctors. The chief executive of the Nursing and Midwifery Council was also part of that conference discussion. And she highlighted that black nurses are also disproportionately more likely to prefer to them and that racism affects nurses in very similar ways to how it impacts on doctors. Something else that might be worth mentioning, Yvonne Coghill, who's a former nurse and now works on race equality issues in the NHS and is actually a very well-known campaigner on this. She pointed out that the NHS employs 1.4 million people and nearly 25% of those are from black, Asian and minority ethnic backgrounds. She highlighted that many of these people complain about their experience in the NHS, about bullying, harassment, the lack of progression they experience just because of the colour of their skin. Like Dr Nagpal, she said, you know, we have to do something about this if the the NHS is to retain staff and provide the highest quality patient care. Obviously, as you mentioned there, how can people give their best if they're discriminated against and they don't feel welcome in their place of work? So not addressing racism is bad for the NHS and bad for patients. And you, you would hope that maybe there might be something about that in the NHS workforce plan as well. Emma, we mentioned earlier about Steve Barclay's appearance at the Health and Social Care Select Committee this week. One of the things he talked about was reducing bureaucracy on GPs. And he alluded to some of the problems related to the interface with secondary care, adding workload to, onto you know, general practice. So we recently ran a survey of GPs that looked at this issue. And you've been looking at some of the findings around inappropriate transfer of work from hospitals to general practice. What did the survey find? Yeah, so we actually asked GPs about what actions they would like to see prioritised to reduce workload pressures in primary care. And clear in a way, the top of that list was stopping the transfer of work from hospitals to practices. 
82% of GPs said that that should be prioritised. I'll come on to talk about that in a bit more detail, but listeners might also be interested in some of the other measures that were highlighted in that poll. Increased funding was the next most popular option, followed by a publicity campaign to educate patients about access to primary care and then bringing down hospital waiting lists. All of those options were backed by at least 65% of GPs who responded to our survey. Anyway, coming back to inappropriate transfer of work, you know, we've talked about this on the podcast before, but it is a huge problem in general practice. Changes to the standard hospital contract happened in 2016 and 2017 that were aimed at stopping this problem, but they seem to have been really ineffectual, basically. Um, the contract should have banned hospitals from forcing GPs to re-refer patients who miss appointments, make hospitals communicate test results direct to patients, and also require hospitals to refer patients on to other specialties if necessary, rather than sending them back to their GP to do this. But that is just clearly not happening. In our survey, almost nine in 10 GPs said that they'd been asked to re-refer patients to a different specialty in the hospital, rather than this just happening within the hospital. A similar amount, 85% said that patients have been told to visit their practice to be prescribed medication that should have been the responsibility of the hospital. Aside from that creating work, it's just simply you know not safe or good practice if GPs are having to prescribe things that have been recommended by another doctor. Then 82% have been asked to follow up test results that have been ordered by the hospital. So basically a patient has had a test in a hospital and then they're asked to come and see the GP about their test results. And 80% had actually been asked to arrange tests by the hospital. So the vast majority of GPs also said they have to re-refer patients to hospitals if they've not attended schedules appointments, arrange fit notes for patients when this could have been done at the point of discharge, and also asked to follow up patients after hospital procedures, you know, when they didn't feel they were best placed to do this. The responses to the survey suggested that many GPs are seeing this on a daily basis. We know this has been a problem for a long time now. Steps that have been suggested to deal with it don't seem to be working, according to the GPs who responded. You're right. I mean, the responses to the poll suggest it's actually getting worse, not better. Many GPs said these sorts of examples of workload transfer were more of them than ever. A number of GPs said they felt like general practice was being treated like house officers by hospital doctors. That was actually a really common complaint. And there was also a general disregard from hospital colleagues for the amount of pressure that GPs and their staff are under. Although a lot of people also acknowledge that hospitals themselves are under a huge amount of pressure at the moment. Quite a few people said that pushing back on these sorts of requests from hospitals is workload in itself. So, you know, whether or not the GP actually undertakes the task they're being asked to do, it almost doesn't really matter. The request itself has just created extra work for the practice. And in the meantime, you know, the patient's just caught in the middle between primary and secondary care. So one thing we didn't ask about specifically, but that did come up quite regularly in the responses was also the amount of work that is resulting from the hospital waiting list, which, you know, we have talked about this before. But specifically in this survey, many of the GPs were highlighting about poor communication between hospitals and patients on the waiting list. That's really adding to pressure in general practice, you know, because patients are coming in wanting to know what's happened with their appointment and understandably worried if they've not heard anything from the hospital or patients wanting their GP to do something to expedite their care because they don't know who to contact in the hospital or who to speak to when they've got no idea what's going on. So all those sorts of consultations are also piling administrative workload onto GPs because then they have to go off and talk to the hospital hospital about all this. 
We know that workload pressure in general practice is huge and that workload is a key reason behind the reason many GPs are suffering from burnout and cutting back on their hours or retiring early. You know, I think that this poll really shows that inappropriate transfer of work from hospitals to primary care is a big driver of a lot of this workload. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Because the BMA has obviously published for a long time all these template letters for pushing back against inappropriate transfers of work. But like you said, it's work for GPs to fill in those letters and send them off to hospitals that are, that are sending work unfairly to them. The Primary Care Access Recovery Plan did set out measures to address some of these issues, didn't it? Yes, I mean, it has set out some steps. And this is what Steve Barclay was talking about at the Health and Social Care Select Committee this week, which you mentioned at the start of this section. He was actually asked in the committee about electronic prescribing in hospitals. But he mentioned um, in response to that question, one of the Department of Health's key focuses was how to reduce bureaucracy in general practice. And he acknowledged that the primary and secondary care interface was a big driver of that bureaucracy. And he pointed out that work under the GP Access Recovery Plan was particularly looking at this. So the Access Recovery Plan actually highlighted that 30% of GP time is spent on indirect patient care, including paperwork. It also said that practices estimate they spend around 10 to 20% of their time on what the report said is lower value administrative work and work generated by issues at the primary secondary care interface. So the plan has basically instructed integrated care boards to take some steps to address this. ICBs have been told they need to make progress on ensuring any onward referral within hospitals actually happen within the hospital without involving GPs, that patients are discharged with all the paperwork and medication they need, that hospitals have proper call and recall systems to follow up tests and appointments, and that there are improved communication channels between primary and secondary care. Clearly, there's a lot that needs to change here. And it is going to require a lot of will from NHS England and ICBs to sort this out. But from our survey, as I've mentioned, it's really obvious this is adding huge amounts of work to general practice, which is not good news. But if the NHS and local systems can get hospitals to take this on board and do something about it, it could actually have a really potentially big impact on workload pressure in general practices. The results from our poll suggest that GPs think it would make actually a big difference to their day-to-day working lives. It's interesting, isn't it? Because I think ICBs, you know, integrated care boards, clearly in the form of the current contract, have the levers they need to make this big change to how hospitals behave towards general practice. Just enforcing the contracts that hospitals are already working under would have a huge impact, by the sounds of it, on GP workload. But those contracts have been in place the sort of NHS structure that came before ICBs for some time. So it's hard to understand why it wasn't enforced then. And it would be interesting to see whether integrated care boards, perhaps as part of the integration agenda, perhaps as part of the sense that, you know, systems are supposedly working together, you know, in a more sort of joined up way under the new system, will they actually start to see it as a priority to enforce what those contracts say about how hospitals should behave towards GPs? Yeah, I think you know GPs will really be hoping for that, but I think there will be some concern out there and and you know this is quite a common concern I've heard from various doctors that hospitals are incredibly powerful within local integrated care systems and maybe the steps that are needed to shift the balance that balance of power to make sure that primary care and community care is given as equal priority that is going to be one of the big challenges that ICSs are going to have to and ICBs are going to have to work on if they are going to deliver this integration as well as solve this problem. 
Next month, the BMA will hold its annual representatives meeting, which is a chance for doctors from all branches of medicine to discuss and vote on a range of issues that they believe should be BMA policy. One of the most eye-catching motions on the agenda for this year's meeting relates to the GMC and doctors will stage a vote of no confidence in the regulator. Nick, can you explain what's going on here? Yeah, so there are actually a couple of no confidence motions about the GMC lined up for debate at this year's BMA annual representative meeting or ARM. And one of them relates to a story in the BMJ earlier this year about companies the regulator has invested in. So uh, those companies include Nestle, McDonald's, Coca-Cola and Pepsi, among others. They're companies that this motion basically suggests that the regulator should not be going anywhere near. So that's one of the no confidence votes that the GMC will face. But the second one is about the impact of fitness to practice cases on doctors' well-being. And it refers back to a GMC report from last year that found 29 doctors had died while under investigation between the start of 2018 and the end of 2020. And at least five of those died by suicide. The motion also says that too many of the sanctions imposed on doctors by the Medical Practitioners Tribunal Service, the MPTS, are disproportionate. And on this basis, there's going to be a call for no confidence vote in both the GMC and the MPTS, and a call for the leadership of both of those organisations to be completely overhauled. There's obviously long-running dissatisfaction in the medical profession about regulation, and the GMC is committed to reform on a number of fronts, partly about reducing numbers of doctors overall who face investigation, or whose cases progress to an investigation from the point of a complaint initially. There's also commitments towards more local resolution of complaints and speeding up the process to ease the burden on individual doctors because waiting while a case is being processed has a massive sort of negative impact on doctors in those cases. But this motion seems to reflect a sense that the change is just not moving fast enough. In the past, I think I'd have said there was no chance of this sort of motion passing. In the current environment, it's a lot harder to call how this is going to go we're in a situation where industrial action is happening, I mean, okay, overpay. That also reflects wider dissatisfaction with the working environment that doctors find themselves in. There's certainly a chance that this summer we could see even more doctors on strike and in dispute with the government over pay and working conditions, at the same time having no confidence in the regulator that oversees how they work. We talked a little bit earlier about racism in medicine and the GMC has faced some real challenges in this area over the past few years. As Dr Nagpal pointed out at that conference we were talking about earlier, we know that doctors are twice as likely to be referred to the GMC if they're from an ethnic minority and three times as likely if they've qualified abroad. The GMC actually put out some information recently suggesting that things are actually starting to improve a bit in this area, but incredibly slowly. The GMC has promised to eradicate disproportionate fitness to practice referrals of ethnic minority doctors by their employers by 2026. And it's also promised to eliminate discrimination in medical education and training by 2031. So both those targets some ways off. Between 2016 and 2022, Ethnic minority doctors were about twice as likely, as you mentioned, to be referred to the GMC by their employer as white doctors. And in 2018 to 2022, so a a separate four-year period, the gap narrowed a bit compared with the earlier period. But basically, referrals came down for both groups and ethnic minority doctors are still about twice as likely to be referred 
by their employer. So there's an improvement of sorts, but not really the sort of massive narrowing of the gap that you might have hoped to see. And when it comes to exam pass rates, the rate is lower for ethnic minority doctors than for white doctors. And that's even when it comes to ethnic minority doctors who are from the UK. For UK black trainees, the average exam pass rate is 62%, compared with 79% for UK white, 68% for UK Asian, and 74% for UK mixed ethnicity trainees. So there are really large gaps that need addressing. And again, the gap has narrowed in recent years. Uh, So the GMC says it's moving in the right direction, but critics say that the change is just not moving fast enough. And as far as the BMA is concerned, I mean, these disparities are all part of a block of evidence about inequality. I mean, all part of very much tied up with what Dr. Nagpal was talking about at the conference the other day, wrapped up with systemic inequality that drives the disproportionate fitness to practice referrals we mentioned earlier, and part of the factors linked to racism that are driving doctors out of the health service on a daily basis that Chan Nagpal was talking about. Yeah, I mean, one of the other things that really worries doctors about the GMC is that it still has this right to appeal and overrule decisions made by the medical practitioner tribunals. So these are the tribunals doctors face if a GMC investigation decides that there is a case for a doctor to answer about their conduct. And then the medical practitioners tribunal will decide on whether the doctor should face any kind of sanction based on a tribunal. So the government promised to strip the GMC of its power to appeal those tribunal decisions in 2018 when it accepted the recommendations from the Williams Review, which looked at gross negligence manslaughter cases in healthcare. And that review, of course, was prompted by the case of Dr Hadiza Bauer-Garber, who was struck off after the GMC appealed the decision of the tribunal. And then she was later instanced. It was a quite high profile case. Last week, a number of health leaders wrote to the government sort of demanding action on this and said, you know, you need to stop the GMC having this power. So what's going on with that? Yeah, so it's five years, as you mentioned, since the government promised to strip the GMC of its power to appeal medical tribunal decisions. And so far, the legislation to, to complete this process hasn't happened. So a group of healthcare organisations, nearly 20 of them, led by the Medical Protection Society, have written to the government to ask it to press ahead with this. And a major reason why they're concerned that it hasn't happened is that in the intervening five years, the GMC has continued to use its appeal power. It's actually appealed two dozen cases in the five years since the government agreed that it shouldn't be able to appeal medical tribunal decisions anymore. The concern is that it's already incredibly stressful for doctors to go through an investigation and that with the GMC being able to appeal decisions by a tribunal, effectively, they're facing double jeopardy. A legislative timetable published last year by the government suggested that the GMC could be stripped of its appeal powers this year or in 2024 at the latest. And I think it's now edging towards 2024. Basically, the point that the MPS and others are making is that this delay is disappointing, it's frustrating for doctors, and that until legislation is passed to change the Medical Act formally, then this sort of threat of a a penalty being second-guessed is hanging over doctors who face investigation by the GMC and the MPTS. 
we start this section talking about the BMA's annual representative meetings, the ARM, um, and obviously that covers all branches of medicine, so it's quite wide-ranging. But is there anything else of interest on the programme that's up for debate that would affect general practice that we should perhaps keep an eye on? Yes, yeah, so, I mean, you know, as you mentioned, the, the ARM covers a really broad range of topics, and general practice is only a, a small subsection of it, or things that are specifically about general practice are a very small subsection of it. At this conference, there will also be votes on continuing concerns over sexism in the BMA. Three years on from the landmark Romney review that confirmed reports published in, in GP Online about the, uh, the culture in the BMA and concerns around sexism and bullying and so on. There will also be some warnings about the NHS workforce crisis and its impact on patient safety. Specifically, in one case, a call for the BMA to join the TUC to uh, coordinate industrial action with other unions. GPs at the meeting are going to highlight concerns about the persistent crisis and subsequent collapse of areas of general practice in the UK. Uh, So the GP crisis very much coming to the fore. There will also be some talk about uh, the prospect of SAS doctors, staff and associate specialist doctors, working in primary care. So LMCs, as we've talked about recently, rejected that idea. And the BMA is is very much opposed to the idea of SAS doctors coming into general practice, having a role in general practice. But at the ARM, there's going to be a vote on a motion that calls for these doctors to be supported to work in general practice. So potentially the, the other side of the argument coming out quite strongly. And we'll also hear some concerns about GPs being forced to declare their pay over a certain threshold. So some of those uh, issues that we've gone over before and also something along the lines of you know, a call for medical student debt to be to be cancelled in return for a certain number of years of service in the health service. That um, SAS motion might be quite interesting because obviously we both watched the, the LMC debate about it and we heard very strongly what GPs felt about it. But I'm assuming that you know there will be SAS doctors at the conference and it will be interesting if any of them get up and really argue the case for why they should have a role in general practice and how they feel they could help. Although having said that, it's worth mentioning that at the LMC's conference, there was actually a representative of SAS doctors on the panel who was also fairly sceptical about the idea and the position paper that the BMA published ahead of the LMC's conference you know, is representative of the BMA's view as a whole rather than just the view of, of the GP committee and that too was quite negative overall about the idea. Finally, our good news story for this week is just to highlight those GPs who were recognised in King Charles's first birthday honours list last weekend. You can read about all the honours on our website at gponline.com, but congratulations to the following GPs. Professor Carolyn Chu Graham, who's Professor of General Practice Research at Keele University and the immediate past chair of the Society of Academic Primary Care, was awarded an OBE for services to general practice and patient care and services to primary care research, particularly into long COVID. Dr. Miles Mack, a GP partner in Dingwall in the Scottish Highlands and chair of the Academy of Medical Royal Colleges and Faculties in Scotland until the end of last year, was also awarded an OBE for services to general practice. Dr. Mack was chair of RCGP Scotland between 2014 and 2017. Dr. Andy Knox, a GP partner in Carnforth, Lancashire, received an MBE for services to general practice. Dr Priya Kumar, a GP partner in Slough in Berkshire and the Health Inequalities Lead for Slough, received a British Empire Medal for services to health improvement in South East England. Dr Lewis Potter, who's a GP registrar from Newcastle and founder of Geeky Medics, which is a website that provides educational resources for medical students and doctors, also received a British Empire Medal for services to higher education and medicine. And Dr Ian Patterson, a GP from Ryehope in Sunderland, who was chair of Sunderland CCG until recently, was also awarded a British Empire Medal for services to the NHS. 
Well, that's it for this week. Thanks for listening and thanks to Nick. I'm back next week when I'm talking to GP and academic Dr. Ben Brown about how AI could change general practice in the coming years. So do join me then. In the meantime, don't forget you can access the latest news affecting primary care and a wealth of other resources on our website at gponline.com.